Hello everyone and welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. I'm your host, Eddie Palmien, and with me here in the studio is my friend and colleague, Niklas Savos. How are you? I'm really energized after having vacation in, in Greece and uh, eager to speak with uh, today's guest. Sounds great. And uh, I also think it would be really fun to interview Ian Castle. Ian is the founder of Microcap Club and is the CIO of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. He is the co-author of the Intelligent Fanatics books, which uh, he wrote together with Sean Eddings. And uh, he was actually our first guest here on the podcast. So um, which book will we talk about today? In this episode, we will speak about golf is not a game of perfect. And uh, this is another example of how it's possible to draw lessons from other areas than investing to become a better investor. I've been a reasonably good golfer myself, and it was with mixed feelings that I read the book, as I wished I would have read it when I was actively playing golf. I realized how many mistakes I made. I'm not a golfer, but uh, the book is, is not technical, and I really enjoyed reading it coming from an investor perspective. And I think it is in so many parts of the book, the word golfing can be exchanged with investing and, and the word golfer can be switched to investor. Uh, and the author, Rotella, he even uses expressions like risk-reward and margin for error. Uh, what do you think about the book otherwise? I mean, this book is packed with lessons for investors, ranging from having a diligent preparation to focus on the process and not the outcome, to avoid comparing oneself to others and also to avoid overanalyzing. And we will discuss much more of that in, in the conversation with Ian. And there was one quote I absolutely loved about accepting bad shots. Striving for perfection is essential. Demanding perfection of himself on the golf course is deadly. That's, that's a topic that we will absolutely discuss more with Ian. Golf is not a game of perfect. It's written by Dr. Bob Rotella and was first published in 1995. Here comes our conversation with Ian Cassidy. Hello, Ian, and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you, and uh, thank you for taking the time. So where are you located today? I am in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, which is in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania. And to begin, uh, can you tell our listeners about your background and what led you into the world of investing? Sure. Yeah. And I, what got me started was when I was a teenager, which to date me, that would have been uh, during the, the technology bubble, internet bubble, or dot-com bubble of the late 1990s. And I kind of got my beak wet with investing during that time period. Uh, my parents had saved for me a small amount of money uh, that was supposed to be used for college. And I invested that in the markets. And uh, this was like 1996, 97. Um, you know, 5x that in a few years just because anybody throwing dart at a newspaper of symbols could have done that. Um, and then, you know, got caught the greed bug because I made so much money so quickly. Uh, decided to go to a local university, which was less expensive, continuing to invest. I worked for a financial advisor through college and um, rode down the dot com crash, you know, turned that 120,000 USD into about 8,000 USD. A lot of that small cap, mid cap technology companies that I own turn into micro caps. Um, and that's how I got introduced to micro cap investing was coming down the other side of that slope. Um, and, you know, from there, you know, it was just kind of angry and, you know, I need to get, I wanted to make this money back and I was already looking at micro caps in my portfolio. So I started, you know, analyzing them and just kind of started learning the ropes, had a few mentors. Uh, most of the discussion back then in the early 2000s was on public stock message boards. And so that's where I 
that's where you would kind of learn about companies. That's where you meet other people to network and do due diligence. And so I kind of built a reputation on these public stock message boards, kind of learned the ropes of microcap by losing my, my own money over and over again and making it back. And um, really with the goal of becoming a full-time private microcap investor, that was my goal since college. And um, through some luck and some skill, was able to, to, to do that in 2009. Um, right as the, the global financial crisis was kind of ending, you know, coming out of the bottom. And so, you know, 2011 I launched microcapclub.com. Um, you know, being a full-time private investor at that time, I just wanted to know what other smart people in this niche of micro and small caps, what they liked and why. So created a private forum, um, for doing that. Um, for the first few years, it was just me talking to myself. Uh, but then over the course of time, you know, it attracted some, some really reputable investors and, and, you know, really 10, 12 years later, you know, it's a pretty cool community of about 240, uh, experienced microcap investors that are global, you know, across the world, you know, really just exchanging ideas and talking about what we liked and why. And so that's what microcapclub.com is today. And it still be, is a valuable tool for my investing. It's, it's really just meant to be an idea generator. You know, what are the best ideas that are out there? Uh, then in 2016, one of the members of Microcap Club and I teamed up and co-authored on two books called The Intelligent Fanatics Project. And the term intelligent fanatics uh, is a term that Charlie Munger used in his speeches to basically define a great business builder. You know, a person that built a business from scratch up to a business that... Uh, dominated its niche geography industry and not only dominated it for a couple of years, but you're talking about decades, you know, and as a small, as an investor investing in small cap and micro cap securities, you know, the smaller the business you're investing in, the more important management becomes. And so I wanted to fine tune kind of my qualitative lens for great leaders. Cause if you want to find great companies early, you got to find great leaders early. Uh, and so really the purpose of kind of teaming up with Sean was just to fine tune that lens for myself and, so we wrote a couple couple books that um, you know three or four people read, um, but we enjoyed writing them, and and that's basically how it then pivoted into starting the the fund that I started in 2018, which is called Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management, and uh, so we now work with uh, about 70 families, high net worth families that are looking for exposure into kind of intelligent exposure into small and micro cap stocks, and so now we have an asset management business there as well. And so um, kind of wear a couple hats today, obviously still investing is prominent, still kind of leading microcap club and also, and also managing the fund as well on top of that. Congratulations to all the, all the success. And I mean, both me and Eddie love your books. And I think uh, when we spoke with Will Thorndike previously on the podcast, he also really appreciate uh, the work you have done with the, with these books. Uh, and Today, of course, we will speak about a book. We will discuss uh, golf is not a game of perfect. So I, I have to ask, are you a golfer yourself or how come you, you read this book? I am a golfer. And um, if you have time, I can tell the backstory of my, my golf history, if, that, if that's interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, I share that. I mean, that background as a golfer. And I think we will get into that. That I mean, there are so many connections. And sometimes for me, it was hard to uh, to focus on uh, the lessons from an investor side, because I, I mostly I was a bit annoyed by myself that I didn't read, read this book when I was a golfer, because I think it would have helped. <laughs> no, it is, and it's a it's a great book, and we can get into it in a, in a couple of minutes. I mean, kind of my my backstory with the game of golf. I had a friend that was a couple of years older, and he was on the the high school 
golf team, that our high school team was so poor that, uh, that I was able to, to make the final varsity slot, you know, for our golf team. And so I ended up playing high school golf. And by my junior year, I was the number one player on the team. Not saying that we were a great team, you know, I was decent. I would shoot high seventies. You know, I was not like a scratch golf or anything like that, but I was consistent. And, you know, that's, that's really how I kind of fell in love with the game of golf. And, you know, one of the, I was thinking of a, a funny story that I don't think I've ever told anybody before really, but it was our high school golf coach. He was 82 years old and he was also our high school's baseball coach. Um, ironically. And I remember when I made the golf team, he, we were, we were, we were having a practice and we were going to play around the golf. And he said, Ian, I'm going to play with you. I said, okay, great. And he said, but I'm going to play one handed. He's like, and I bet you, I could beat you one handed against you. And I was just like, okay, you know, there's an 81 year old man that's going to play one handed and beat me. And sure, sure enough, I ended up shooting a 92, which was about 10 strokes worse than I normally did. He shoots an 89 playing one, but it was right arm. <laughs> and I was, and after the round, and I'm so embarrassed. And he, he came up to me, he came up to me after that. He's just, I remember him saying like, you know, I knew I had you beat, you know, as soon as I said that I saw your eyes as soon as on, a, on the first tee, when I said I was going to play one handed and, and you were thinking to yourself, there's no way I can let this 81 year old man beat me, you know, one hand. And he did. And he said, this is a mental game. He's like, you can, I got into your head. You can't let that happen again. Um, you know, if I would have said nothing, you would have beat me nine out of 10 times, but I got into your head. This is a very mental game. And, um, that was a lesson that was a, a big impression on me that I remember just reflecting on this podcast we were going to do that is probably a good lead into the book. And ironically, when I made the golf team, my freshman year, that was probably 1996, this book we're going to be talking about golf is not a game of perfect came out in 1995. So that was a year before I got beat by a one armed 81 year old man. Um, and I, I have to give credit to, I believe it was sidecar capital who gave me the book. Um, I didn't, I didn't read it until 2020. I believe he said it to me. I tweeted about golf and he uh, reached out and said, I got, I have a book you need to read. And he sent it to me and, uh, and it's been a great read and, and well, to why we're on the podcast today. So all credit to Sidecar Capital for sending it to me. And the author of the book is uh, Bob Rotella. Can you tell us a bit about him? Yeah. So I guess Bob, Dr. Bob Rotella, he's a sports psychologist. Um, he works with a lot of golfers. I know he's worked with um, like Davis Love the Third, Nick Price, Tom Kite. You know, Tom Kite and Nick Price, he talks about a lot in the book because, again, the book was written, I think, in 1995. And those were two you know, prominent players from the early 90s. Uh, but he also has worked with, um, I think, Patrick Harrington, Jim Furyk, Darren Clark, Rory McIlroy. Um, I think he mentions Pat Bradley. And I, so he's, he's and Justin Thomas. So he does, he has, I think, worked with, you know, players of today's generation as well. And he really just helps them work on their, their mental game, you know? And I think that's, I think probably the first takeaway, one of the interesting things about golf is why I started playing golf. And that's because it can be played over a lifetime. You know, you can really play golf up until, you know, you're in a pine box. And, you know, I think it's one of the interesting things about investing too, 
you know, is investing is equally fulfilling because you can invest over your lifetime. You know, investing wouldn't be nearly as fun. I don't think golf would be nearly as fun as if you had to stop at the age of 30 or 40 or 50 or 60, like other sports, you know, you have your, you have your entire lifetime. So that in itself, you know, you have to have the patience to become the best golfer and the best investor that you can be. And you can, you know, kind of see your progression over time. So I think that in itself makes a interesting kind of similarity to, to investing is just golf as a sport. And I think there's, I think golf is probably the best sport that is comparable to stock picking and active investing in particular. I mean, one, one connection there is that in golf, of course, you have to, you have to adapt how you play depending on your, your physical um, capabilities. And uh, I mean, investing is not a physical sport at all, but, and, and not a sport maybe, but, but you also have to adopt yourself a lot as an investor i think i mean uh, for example i have i have many friends who are really really active as investors and uh, i mean they are more traders but still have a long term mindset and i just think as 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 a as a parent myself with small children it's uh, you you feel that there are other things in life and what what type of strategy um i have as an investor really changes depending on my life in general and uh, I just feel that some strategies may hold. I mean, may work for a longer time. What, what's your view on that? And have you thought about that? Yeah, I think I think there's probably a couple rabbit trails, if you want to call them that, kind of in that in that thought process. I think the first one is, like you said, I kind of as you were talking, I was thinking about just how golf. You know, you can have two or ten or a thousand, hundred and five, forty-five yard. 150 yard shots into a green, you know, but none of them are going to be the same. You know, your life's going to be different. The wind's going to be different. The temperature's going to be different. The altitude's going to be different. You might be hitting out of the rough. You might be hitting out of the fairway. You might be hitting out of the divot. You might be hitting out of the sand. Um, you might be trying to hit underneath a tree or over a tree. You know, there's very, there's no two lives that are the same, you know, in golf, even if the exact yardage is the same. And there's this great video, um, I think it was an interview that David Faraday did with Phil Mickelson. And you can find this clip where he talks about just those different lies. And it's like a two or three minute segment of this video where he talks about, you know, just how he practices 15. I think he, Phil Mickelson practices 1500 shots per club per month at the exact same yardage. And he's just going through all the different iterations of what's going through his head, you know, de depending on the lie the altitude, you know, in the morning, the club goes five yards less in the afternoon, late afternoon, it goes five yards more. If you choke down an inch, it takes three yards off. You know, it's just like these types of nuances. And, you know, I feel like relating that to investing, like there's so much nuance in investing. And I think stock picking is a game of identifying companies through some broad base pattern recognition but it kind of has to be loosely defined, you know, because I think the big money is made analyzing those nuances and getting those right. Because you, know, you can analyze Lowe's against Home Depot, against Ace Hardware, and they all look the same, but they're very, very different, you know? And I think um, you find it doesn't matter how you invest, you kind of see it in your own line. There's so many times because of the pattern recognition and a past win that you had in the portfolio you eventually see something else and you see that same pattern and it reminds you of a past win that you had. 
and you gravitate to that. And that can be good or bad. You know, that can make you irrationally like something that, too much because it just reminds you of something else that happened in the past that really was probably completely different than what you're looking at. Let's just be honest. Um, and so, you know, I think it's important just to stay rational and realize that each company is different, even if they're in the same industry doing the same thing. You know, and a past win that looked the same doesn't look isn't nearly or probably not at all the same as a future one that you think has all the same ingredients. Um, so anyway, I, I know I don't know if that that's one part of what kind of got triggered as you were talking. <laughs> and I don't. I mean, uh, a connection to that is, as you said, I mean, you need to adopt to the to the situation you have and. Rotella presents the need for golfers to have a, a certain routine before striking a ball. And in, in investing, we hear about investors going through like pre-mortems and to have checklists for, for our decisions. And I'm curious to know, how, how do you think about the balance of staying rigid uh, versus flexible um, when making an investment decision? It depends how you invest, but I do think like you have this broad set of principles. That's what I kind of say is this like broad pattern recognition or framework that you have developed over time. And the nuance of it is you have to know where, where you can bend, um, where you can bend on some of those things. And that just takes time and experience and decades to, to be able to kind of know that. And even when you think, you know, it, you're going to be wrong half the time. Um, you know, and I, but I getting back to kind of the pre-shot routine that you mentioned, you know, he, he mentions in that book, just the, the importance of the pre pre-shot routine and how um, basically 80, a lot of the professional golfers he talks to like 80% of the golf shot is like in that pre-shot routine and setting up to that shot consistently every time clearing your mind, you know, just thinking about target and swing, target and swing, you know, and that consistency of that pre-shot routine puts them in the right framework and mental position to be able to execute on that shot consistently. And I think a consistent kind of pre-shot routine in golf is equivalent to a consistent due diligence process. You know, whether it's the process, the checklist, the framework, the investment principles you apply to new ideas or existing positions, you know, it's that consistency that allows you to kind of benchmark new ideas against what you already own or new ideas against other new ideas And, you know, I think that consistent research process and diligence and order ranking ideas is really important, you know, over time, especially as you continue to compound your knowledge and look at more and more ideas and that will become your greatest asset as an investor is that is being able to archive that knowledge that you've built over decades in a consistent way and benchmarking those things accordingly. And so I kind of think of the pre-shot routine in golf, similar to just a consistent due diligence process. Rotella writes in the book that you're going to have to learn to think consistently if you want to score consistently. Yeah. Brings home the point, I think. Yeah. Uh, and he also, regarding the, the routine, he also writes that acceptance is the last step in a sound routine and that no matter how good you get at this game, a lot of funky, crazy things are going to happen on the golf course. And I mean, we talked about the wind and all the things that can happen. And to me, that really sounds like the financial markets as well. And uh, you really need to accept what is going on. Uh, do you have like a conscious way of accepting whatever happens or how do you deal with that? It's now kind of like relating it back to golf. It, I think a big chunk of the book is just, oh yeah, it's the title. Golf is not a game of perfect, you know, and I, I would probably write an article. You could just replace golf with investing, 
you know, investing is not a, a game of perfect. And a part of that, a big part of golf is just not getting too emotionally high or low and not getting too low after you hit a bad shot and forgetting that shot and just playing every shot as they come and not thinking about what you just did. Um, there's this, there's this great story in the book that he talks about Tom kite and himself playing with two, I believe it was Texas collegiate golfers. You know, it's probably the story that is probably the most representative of the book. And he talks about how him and Tom kite were playing with these two university of Texas golfers. I think they were the number three or number four in their golf team. And they played the round of golf. And I think they all shot within a stroke or two of one another. You know, and after the round, one of the golfers approached Tom and said, Tom, you know, you, we basically hit the ball as good as you did today. You know, we, um, when we missed a bunker shot, you know, we got it up and down, just like you did. We missed a green. We got it up and down, just like you did. You know, why are you the leading money winner on the P in PGA tour history? You know, we're the number three and four players on our Texas golf team. And, and Tom had this great response and it was basically, you know, the difference is when you guys get into tournaments, the likelihood is that you'll lose your concentration on four or five shots every round, you know, over a four day tournament, you know, that costs you 16 to 20 shots. And that's the difference between winning a tournament and losing your tour card, you know, and if you let one of those bad shots compound into another bad shot or another double bogey, in the next hole, you know, you're not going to make the collegiate golf team. And I just thought that was just an awesome kind of illustration of just how golf is not a game of perfect. It's how you deal with the bad shots being a little bit better makes a big difference. And so golf is just like investing and, you know, it's not, it's not about being perfect, not letting your mistakes compound, you know, for me and how I apply with investing, you know, it's, it's working hard to identify the losers in my portfolio as well. You know, and we're, we're trying to identify my losers quicker. You know, because over a lifetime, and I've tweeted about this, and I mean, it's just if you're a stock picker that wants to buy and hold great companies, it's like you're probably going to have 10 or 20 big winners over a 30 or 40 year career that make up 90% of your gains. And then you're going to have hundreds of other stocks that you that you owned over that time period that just didn't live up to your expectations. And so those losers, those hundreds of stocks, you know, are, you know, stealing time. They're a waste of your time. And so identifying the losers, I think, is important so you can replace them you know, with the winners over time. Um, you know, maybe another lesson kind of what you leading into this, cause I think it's a big chunk of the book is just learning to accept, uh, the bad shots. And I, he had this great quote in the book. And I think it was something like, um, like the professional golfers learn to accept their bad shots, but the amateur golfers don't, you know, the professional golfers can really accept their bad shots a lot better than an amateur golfer can. Uh, and maybe that's because amateur golfers have a lot more bad shots than the pro golfers do, but they do, they do a much better job with it. And he talks about like with all of the professional golfers that Dr. Rotella worked with, which has been, I don't know, 50, 60, I don't know, maybe more than that professional golfers that I think have won several hundred tournaments, you know, combined that have won majors. He can remember a handful of times out of those, you know, 100 golfers that he's worked with have won hundreds of tournaments where a golfer said that they played to the best of their abilities for two out of four rounds, you know, which means they are winning ugly. You know, they're, out, they're not going out and playing perfect golf when they win a golf tournament. 
they're learning how to win ugly. And that means accepting bad shots. And that means not letting your bad shots compound into more and more bad shots, more and more bad holes. Um, because just like golf, you know, investing, you know, golf is, a, is a, he also mentions, you know, going through a, th- a few of these things because they all kind of interconnect, but he talks about how a lot of the issues that pros have is they let the start of their round dictate their attitude and their effort, you know? So if they start off with a few bad holes that discourages them so much. And if you play golf, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you start off, you know, double bogey, double bogey, bogey. You're just like, why do I even want to play anymore? Just let's go to the 19th hole, grab a beer. And it's the same thing with pros. You know, if they start off with a, with a bad two or three or four strokes, you know, it really hits them mentally. And uh, he had this great line where, you know, if you're a victim of the first few holes, you don't have a prayer. He said, you're, you're basically like a puppet. You know, you're, you're letting those first few holes jerk your strings and tell you how you're going to feel the rest of the round. And you can't, you can't let that happen. And I think, I think relating that back to investing too, it's like, we're all going to have bad seasons in investing. You're going to have bad months. You're going to have bad quarters. You're going to have bad years. And you can't let that kind of distract you from the long-term game that you're playing. Um, so anyway, that was a mouthful, but I, but a few of those topics kind of interact, you know, that he talks about, you know, and a lot of the book is about, you know, how golf is not a game of perfect. For my golfing, I can, I can really say when, when you shoot one bad shot, you try to make up for it and maybe put, take up the, the driver when you shouldn't and so on. And I was just thinking about your early days as an investor, when you, when you went from $120,000 to $8,000 and, and you said that, I mean, you need to make up for it more or less. And that's, it's quite common among investors that we try to to get back what we what we lose and i mean in terms of your i mean how have you have, how you have gained experience after that i mean how how have you learned to cope with that that's a good, that's a good question i mean i think you know and he, and he even talks about what you just described in his book too where you know the tendency is when you make a bad shot to get more aggressive and bold with the next one to make up for it And you see that investing too, where if you lose money quickly, you don't stick to the game plan. You look at riskier ways to get that money, money, that money back quicker, you know, and, and nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of a hundred, that's the wrong thing. You should be playing more conservative. Um, I think Stanley Druckenmiller, who was a trader, he would say you should be, you know, hitting for singles. You shouldn't be hitting for home runs. If you're not confident, you know, if you're not seeing the ball, you know, you should just be hitting for singles. Um, And that's how I, that's how I've tried to be as well. You know, my early years, it was kind of difficult because there was so much luck involved in the first couple of wins, you know, like I was just lucky that I invested during the dot-com bubble and made that money and then lost it. And even my first big win in microcap, which was XM Satellite Radio, it's a story I've told before, but it's actually my first time I went and met with a management team took that $8,000 and bought that stock. And it went up, went up like 14 X and 30. What was it? Yeah. 14 X and 14 months, something like that. And you held it. Yeah. And I held, well, I held it for, I think 10 of those X's, not the full 14. Um, but again, like those were, you know, those were both 110% luck, you know, and I'm self-aware about that, but it doesn't really, that's a lot of times it doesn't really matter. It's a, I know when you guys think about your own investing career, oftentimes it's the first couple big wins that influence where you sit on the risk reward spectrum. So if like the X axis is a zero, not zero, but a neutral risk tolerance, you know, like I was, you know, I got a 
big win. And so I was always above more of aggressive risk. Yes, I lost a big, a big amount when it came back down, but I had already made money being risky before. So I knew it could be done. So I was still above, you know, that neutral risk tolerance. So and then I made it again in XM. So I almost think like those first two or three wins that you have or losses greatly influence how you see risk, you know, for a long, long period of time. And, you know, I've always been a concentrated investor too, being in three or four companies. Um, now it's maybe like six, but everybody would say that's still insanely concentrated. Um, and it's just because that's where I started and that's how I made money. I've just had comfort in that area. It doesn't mean the way I do it is right for you or anybody else. It's just that that's kind of where just my experiences aligned with some of the wins I had. Um, and I think the way you start investing greatly influences where you end up. Like if I would have lost a lot of money the first time out of the gate, I don't know. I don't know what I would be doing. I would just be in the money market accounts or something. I, you know, it, I have no idea, you know, and that's happened some that way too, right? Where people just lose money the first couple of times. They want nothing to do with the stock market or they just go into, you know, being a passive investor the rest of their life instead of an active one. And so I think we're, I'm very self-aware about, um, especially the older I get, you know, the way I do things is the way I do things. It shouldn't be the way that you do things. You know, because I think your experiences and your wins and your losses really greatly impact your your ultimate strategy and the and the art form of your strategy is 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 really a fingerprint to yourself, not to anybody else. I, I love the the Buffett quote that you you don't have to make up for your your losses in the same stocks that you that you lost money in the first time, and I, I see that in many early investors. They, I mean, if a stock is down ninety nine percent, they say that this could hundred x. And uh, often, my experience is that I mean, you should move on to, to to other ideas because it's most often it will go to zero. Well, and your and your point, Nicholas, before is you know you you are evolving as an investor. You know, the way I started was in story stocks, and then I kind of evolved into resource stocks, and then it was I only really kind of what I would say characterized myself into GARP, you know, growth at a reasonable price, kind of focused on profitability. Yeah, um, probably not until 2007. So that would have been well on my way to becoming a full-time private investor, you know, and, and, you know, and then I kind of focused on, on some healthcare. And so it's, when you look back at your journey, you know, it, it's, it's interesting how you get there. And, you know, the way I invest today isn't the same way I invested six years ago, and especially not 12 years ago or 18 years ago, you know, you're going to evolve. And if you're not evolving, you're not, you're not growing. It doesn't mean that you have to all of a sudden going from a deep value to investing in Bitcoin. It just means that a lot of the the ways you get better are little tweaks, you know, on the on the edges of your strategy. You know, and that's where the alpha can be had is just getting tweaking things here and there. And, and one of the golfers uh, in the book, uh, Jim Flick, who's quoted there, he he said that golf a golf player has to pass through three stages, and the first one is unconsciously incompetent. And then you get consciously competent, and then you are unconsciously competent. So, I think that's quite interesting in terms of what you're saying now that you have evolved during these steps. And uh, in the book, they all, he also speaks a lot about confidence. Uh, golfers need to think about putting the ball in the hole and be sure about that. Not think about the lake because then the ball is going to go into the lake. How has that um, evolved in your journey, so to say, with the swings? I think I think confidence is 
is really important. I remember you mentioned Fleck, and I remember another story in the book. Um, I think it was Rotella was telling a story about, um, I think it was a story that Davis Love Jr. told. Uh, not Davis Love the Third for those golfers that are listening. Davis Love the Third is he's probably fifty five now. This would have been Davis Love the Third's father, hence the junior. But he was also a, a touring pro. And Rotella was telling a story about Davis Love Jr. sharing a, a motel room with Gary Player, I believe, for a week. And they were, they were playing several rounds. And he and he said one day they were playing um, like shaggy, slow Bermuda grass greens. Um, and player remarked that he, he loves playing Bermuda greens, loves playing them every time. And the next day they went out and played fast bent grass greens and player remarked, God, I love playing these fast greens. They're great. And, uh, Davis loves finally just had enough. He's like, well, which is it? You know, do you like playing slow greens? Or do you like playing fast greens? And player replied, you just have to love playing whatever you're on or something like that. It was a great comment. And it's so true, you know, um, you know, as investors, as stock pickers, you know, we, we're sometimes investing in bull markets and we're sometimes investing in bear markets. And, you know, we just can't let the market direction or our portfolio's direction determine our attitude and effort or how, or how we treat people for that matter. Um, you know, we always need to stay positive, you know, and I think, I think that's a really important lesson is just like continuously to be, to be positive and continuing to have self-confidence. You know, you have when you're when you're doing the work and you're doing and the key to this game is doing independent research and forming independent conviction, you know, so you can take advantage of this business when the price is volatile sitting on top of it and you know what to do and when there was another one. I don't know if you guys remember him talking about that. I kind of loved it. The framing that he did was there's no hot streaks in golf and and I, I think it was something like the quote that he had was the hot streaks. The hot streak represents the golfer's true ability. You know, it results essentially from trust. Um, you know, the golfer trusts his abilities. You know, he sets up to the ball knowing that he can pick a target and hit it there. You know, he does things unconsciously. Um, the swing repeats itself. The swing feels effortless. And, you know, I think investing is similar to golf where, you know, self belief and self-confidence and conviction are important. You know, they, they need to be anchored in reality. Obviously you can't be anchored in hope or prayer, but, uh, but you need to be able to trust your work. You need to have confidence. You need to believe you can hit great shots in golf. You need to be able to believe you can pick a great stock and in, in investing, you know, and, and, you know, if you did the work, you earned it, you know, and I think there's been a few times, I'm sure you guys have had it too, where you had, you know, two or three big wins in a row. And it's almost like those one or two rounds, Nicholas, that you play a year, you know, where everything clicks, where it feels effortless. And you think to yourself, wow, I really played over my head. You know, boy, if I could just play like that all the time. And the way Dr. Rattel is, is frames it is like, no, that that is your potential. You know, you that is what you should be doing and can be doing every single time. You know, if you have the right kind of mental attitude to approach the game, you know, that's just, that's just God giving you a glimpse of what you could become, which is, you know, which is pretty cool, you know, and, and you shouldn't be suffering from imposter syndrome, you know, after two or three big wins in investing, think you just got lucky, you know, no, that's, that's your potential.
you know, and there's no reason you can't keep that string going. Same thing in golf, same thing with investing. So confidence is very important, I think. And uh, I mean, one thing that that struck me was, uh, uh, I mean, you 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 talked about what what Rutella writes about uh, lack of concentration and, and that you could lose a lot of shots uh, due to due to that. But he also mentioned that the most important thing in golf is actually the short game. So what you do with your putter and, and wedges and. I just felt that many many amateurs, including me, focused mostly on the long game because I, I think that was the most fun piece of golf. I just wonder, do you think there is an equivalent to a short game in investing? Yes. You know, and I, and I think... So there, there's another book that I read, and I'll mention it. It's called The Elements of Scoring by Raymond Floyd. And I also wrote, read that one recently. And they hit on a lot of common characteristics between Golf is Not a Game of Perfect and, and Raymond Floyd's book. And... Um, Raymond Floyd's more direct about it, but he said the reason why a lot of golfers don't score better is because they don't know how to play the game and they don't know what's important to the game. The short game, you know, chipping, pitching, putting is 70% of the game. But how often are you practicing pitching, chipping, putting? Um, Raymond Floyd talks about the number one piece of advice he would have is, you know, if you want to be a great golfer, practice six foot putts. Just get really, really good at six foot putts. What you're trying to get at too, Nicholas, was just, you know, I think the six foot putts, you know, that equivalent is kind of knowing fundamentals, knowing financials, you know, in the investing world, you know, that sort of is your bedrock. You know, you need to be able to know how to read a financial statement. Um, and that's boring. And I think you can also take it a step further, you know, just learning accounting, learning industries, learning how different types of businesses make money, learning how to value a business. Um, if you're more of a qualitative investor, you know, talking to management, talking to competitors, talking to ex-employees, these aren't sexy things. In fact, they're, some of them are uncomfortable, but do you want to get better or don't you want to get better? Do you want to be a better investor, a great investor, or don't you? If you don't, then you're not going to put in the time. You're going to find an excuse not to do these things. If you do, you will find the time to do these things. Um, so I, I, I think that those fundamentals of investing, learning the language of investing, which is accounting, you know, that bedrock and learning industries, learning businesses, learning how to spot good leaders, great leaders, you know, trying to formulate the rough edges of a framework for pattern recognition. You know, that that looks like hard work and it is. So I'm curious to know now, how many hours do you put in into that hard work? And do you have a, a way to to measure how you improve as an investor? I think the, the way to measure is always difficult. I mean, I've always just kind of kept journals for my watch list of companies. And, you know, I I think it's up of like 600 pages now in like a Word document. But there's actually better tools now. And you can create Excel spreadsheets, you know, that immediately input, you know, the stock price valuation. So you can order rank, you know, the ones that your your watch list that you have now. It makes it easier. But I really like um, you had Jake Taylor on. I really like Journalytic. I've been using that for several months. And uh, I think that's a great tool to be able to kind of look back at past decisions, even emotionally how you made decisions. And I know they're they're going to make that product better and better, but I think there's there's different tools like Journalytic and some other things that are going to make it easier for you to to get better. The hard part about 
and I think Jake probably mentioned it on your podcast with him. The hard part about investing, a lot of people like to look at, you know, how do you get better with investing? It's like deliberate practice, you know, and so everybody wants to talk about deliberate practice and it's really just the um, golfers use this, you know, everybody uses like kind of these methods of deliberate practice, like the 10,000 hour rule, these types of things. The problem with comparing that to investing and practicing that way is like just the, the, you know, the feedback loops are so much longer in investing, you know, you might not know if you're wrong for 10 years, you know, where if you hit a bad shot in golf, you know, immediately and you change, you adapt and you hit another shot. Okay. Well, now it works. Well, it took one minute, you know, with investing, you might not know you're wrong for you know three months, three years, 30 years. You know, so how do you just shorten those feedback loops to where it doesn't take you a lifetime to get a little bit better, you know? And so, that's that's the tough thing. You're, you're saying thing about playing a musical instrument, you know, where deliberate practice works. It's like you play a bad note, you can hear it, you know. Um, so investing is tough because of the feedback loops with it. So any types of tools that you can include in your arsenal that can, you know, look at your things that you own and why you're making those decisions and looking at things that you maybe want to own and how you would order rank and see go looking back in time. One of the things that I think maybe hurt me potentially is because I've been so concentrated in so few positions for so long, you could make the argument that I would have, would have learned quicker if I was more diversified. Because if I was in 10 companies over 20 years, I would have been able to kind of learn more about more companies and also about myself and my strategy because it's just over more companies. Um, I don't believe that's true, but... I think there could be a case for that, you know, like actually starting off diversified instead of concentrated, you'd actually learn more because you'd have more experiences quicker. But I also find that on the concent being concentrated kind of has allowed me to kind of learn the emotional lessons of investing quicker. You know, the highs are higher, the lows are lower. Um, so... I mean, talking about all these things that, that you think is, uh, I mean, the most important thing to focus on as an investor to, to build that pattern recognition... I, I started to think about this when uh, Rotella uh, discussed uh, those those uh, golfers that overanalyze the greens. And myself, as a golf golfer, I was quite annoyed actually when people took too much time on the green. Um, how do you how do you strike that balance between? I mean, actually knowing that okay, now you know as much I need to make this investment. How do you get to that, that, okay, these, these three things, so maybe, or something is, is the most important things for this type of business. And, and let, let me focus on that. My answer to that would be different today than it was probably 10 years ago. I think today, when I look at ideas, I usually know within 30 minutes, if it's something that's special, you know, that's kind of what I'm looking for. I'm looking for things that are special to me, you know, that I think, you know, hit all the things that I'm looking for. And I usually know really quick, very rarely have I made money on something that's taken me a long time to get to a buy decision, you know? And so for me, it's just a couple decades of pattern recognition and just looking for the, for certain qualities or uniquenesses that trigger something in me that say, okay, this is something that's is really, really interesting. Um, and that might, might only happen a couple times a year. You know, and because but that, that's okay. You know, it's like you're going to look at a thousand different companies, and you know, you can't, you, you you can't, you shouldn't invest in all of them. And investing is a game of subtraction, just taking that list and down to a select few that you feel that are meant for you. 
And you have to be okay with the fact that, you know, just like Howard Marks says, you're going to pass on a lot of ideas that other people make money on. And you have to be okay with that. You know, those ideas are meant for them. They're not meant for you. You know, there's a lot of even white papers showing that, you know, founder ownership, large insider ownership actually doesn't mean anything more to your returns. It doesn't mean that they work out any more or less than a CEO that owns 1% of the company. And that might be true. It might not be true. But I know for me and how I invest, it, whether for me, I can know I can invest longer in an idea and really believe in an idea when I know that the founder or the CEO or the management team has skin in the game, when they, I, I know they have to live with the consequences of their decisions. It just helps me be a better investor, investing in, in situations that have those qualities. After you, after you have found that business that you, that you after 30 minutes think, I, I mean, this, is, uh, this, this may be a home run. Uh, I mean, how long time does it usually take for you to digest that and, and think it over and so on before you actually make the decision? It can vary. You know, we've bought things in a day or two and, you know, other things that might take, take longer. Um, but it, it normally happens pretty quick, what I've found, which kind of goes against the grain of what we're taught or what we see other people doing where... And I think, again, it depends if you're like, I'm a micro cap investor, right? You know, if I was, if I was investing in large caps or mid caps, it might be different, you know, where I think a lot of investors and maybe rightly so, you know, they put a lot of front end work in and they try to be right from the beginning. You know, it's like, they're trying to find this thing that can compound for 25 years and they're going to be right from the beginning. And you can tell just through their process that, you know, when you ever hear anybody saying, well, we put six months into the research process and we, you know, do 85 expert calls and this or that and the other thing, you know, to get to a buy decision, you know, they're trying to be perfect, you know, and I think you can. But is that equivalent to what Rotella speaks about that, that as a golfer, you shouldn't focus on the mechanicals on the golf course. You should focus that afterwards on, on the practice I mean, is that similar, you think? I think it could be. I, I think we all, it's, it's hard to make comparisons to how other people invest, especially if they invest in large caps versus how I invest. And so I'm, I'm, I, I watch what I say. But relating to micro caps and on perfect, you know, as investors, especially me, I know I'm not going to be perfect. So I feel like that frees me up quite, quite honestly. Like I know going into it, I know looking at my portfolio today of six companies, there's losers sitting there. You know, and every day my goal is to find out which one of those losers is in my portfolio as much as it is to find the next winner. Um, and I know that. And I feel like me knowing that I'm not going to be perfect gives me an edge to some extent. Um, because I think, especially in micro cap and small cap, I think a lot of people, a lot of investors returns, quite honestly, would probably be better if they allowed themselves to be wrong more often. Um, they gave themselves up a little, just let themselves breathe a little bit, their philosophy a little bit. You know, I think, you know, taking perfection down to the stock level, when you're investing in micro caps, none of these situations are perfect. You know, they're all imperfect. They all have hair on them. They're all, they all have something that's usually wrong. You know, if they were perfect, they'd be perfectly priced. You know, I think as we know with, studying multi-baggers or hundred baggers. It's just like, you know, half the return is the growth and half the return is multiple expansion. You know, it's like you're trying to find these imperfect things that could become something that's perfect later on. 
Um, and so knowing that, you know, I, I feel like when I look, I think of like my, when I look over the last 20 years in my framework today, I think if a novice came in and was trying to pick micro cap stocks, they would probably have a 10% fatting average. I feel like I'm 50 or 60, you know, just after 20 years of experience of doing this. That means I'm still going to be wrong 40%. You know, it's about controlling those losses and not having big losses and that type of thing. Um, but I feel like the the talking about perfection as it relates to micro cap versus large cap is an interesting nuance in it, in itself. You know, and I agree that it's good to to be aware that you are not the best investor that you could be, and that's something that you wrote in an article quite recently on on Micro Cap Club that in, inside every investor there is a a better investor, and I think that's quite uh, interesting and it also relates to what Rotella actually finishes the book with uh, that we have to understand that even at our best we, we will not come close to mastering the game and uh, in the end you will realize that you have you love golf because of what it teaches you about yourself I, I really think that is uh, at the core of, of what what investing is about as well or, or do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100% you know, you learn so much I feel like the market and your portfolio is almost like you sitting down on a psychiatrist's couch, you know, asking them to internalize everything. You know, the market will tell you more about yourself and your emotions than any psychiatrist can. You know, I feel like that's, um, you'll learn a lot about yourself over the course of five, 10, 20 years because you're in your, you're, you're in your own echo chamber. You know, it's the same, same as golf. You know, they're the opponent, There's other individual sports, you know, but golf is like your opponent isn't the other players, even in tournament golf. It's, it's yourself. And then a secondary opponent is the course, you know, so golfers are in that same echo chamber, you know, as investors are, you know, investing is an individual sport. You might have a team around you, but it's an individual sport. And so I think those, those are interesting similarities. And, um, It's, just, it's, a, it's also what makes it so fun. I mean, I, I think one of my favorite lines, another lesson from the book too, is just, you know, everybody invests differently. He, there's this quote that he talks about, like how the, the best players, whether it was Tom Watson, Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas, Lee Trevino, Gary Player, you know, they took pride in the fact that their golf swings were unique to them. You know, and, and to a similar, and the similarity there is, you know, we all invest differently. And, you know, the, the older you get, the more comfortable you become with who you are, unless you care about convincing other people they should swing like you. You know, your, your swing, your investing strategy is unique to you. And it's in that uniqueness is your edge. And, um, you know, great golfers, you know, have the conviction to make their swings their own. You know, and I think investors the, the same way. The swing to a golfer is their art form. You know, and their score is what made it beautiful. You know, you can have a crazy swing like Jim Furyk; it's all over the place, and still shoot five under par. You can have a beautiful swing like Rory McIlroy; have the same result. You know, it's the same thing with investing. You know, the way you invest your strategy is your art form. You know, your long-term cager is the common ground that you'll be judged upon that decides whether that art form is beautiful or whether it's ugly. Totally agree. Uh, but the challenge as as a fairly young investor, having been in the game for 
15 years or so. I mean, there's so much to learn and that's what we're doing in the podcast and, and all the time around it. But uh, we also need to take some some time away from investing. So how are you dealing with that? That's something that Rotella is also speaking about. Don't just be on the golf course all the time and, and do read a book and, and do something else. Yeah, I know for me, and, and it, it might be just individual, but microcap club for me has always been what I would call a productive distraction, you know, just running that community. It keeps me sort of a foot in the game. It's still micro centered sort of in investing. Obviously it's micro cap, but it, it kind of distracts me in all the right ways. Um, being a concentrated investor, you know, kind of like what Rotella was saying too, it was like, especially the more concentrated you get, the higher the risk that you overthink your positions. That you start looking at every little nuance as a reason to buy or sell. You, know, you just feel every up and down of every movement when you're in four stocks because you see the impact in your portfolio. Um, and I think it's important, especially if you're a concentrated stock picker, to have a productive distraction that will distract you from overthinking things too much. Because even the big winners that I've had over the years, none of them were perfect, you know, even as they went up 10 or 20x. You know, they had, they still had a quarter or two where they stumbled. And, you know, when you're concentrating things and you're watching them, you know, and, and you need something to work or you're worried about losing money, you know, you, you can't hold these stocks like, um, you know, you're strangled, strangling them. You have to hold them like a tube of toothpaste. You know, you have to give them enough opportunity to disappoint you for a quarter or so. You have to give them that wiggle room. And you also have to give them enough room to exceed your expectations. Um, and so I think it's important to have some sort of distraction. For, so for me, maybe it's not a good distraction because it still kind of keeps me in tune with the markets. But I think that's why I call it productive. Microcap Club is a productive distraction for me that kind of takes, takes me away from overthinking the four or five stocks or six stocks that I own. Um, but obviously, my family does a pretty good job of that as well. <laughs> you know, just trying to be a good father, good husband, um, good friend. You know, I think a combination of all of all those things. You know, uh, as Nicholas has noticed, he plays one run round of golf per year anymore. Now that he has a family, yeah, it's because he focuses more on the more on the family as he should. You know, life's all about becoming less selfish. You know, as you have a family and, and everything like that, you have to figure out how to how to get blood out of the rock or how to, you know, get what you want to accomplish in less time. You know, I, I remember being able to sleep in until 8, 8 a.m. Only, only now looking back 20 years, do I realize how much time I had. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now it's getting my kids up and out and off to school, right? So, <laughs> I mean, on the, on the topic of, topic of uh, aging, um, I think uh, Rotella brings up a great example of uh, of the Red Queen effect, uh, where a golfer always must work hard on main- maintaining the confidence. And uh, Rotella also brings up that it's not about only that uh, golfers that age becomes, uh, I mean, they can't hit the ball as, as far as they, they can and so on. It's also that they change mentally and that... Um, fear from having made so many mistakes because as we said I mean no one is perfect and uh, the best golfers have made I mean many many mistakes over their careers how do you think that connects with investors I mean do investors uh, age well so to speak I hope so but I can I think 
you know, the similarity there is I think in golf, because it's similar to investing your own, you're in your own echo chamber. There's so much good times and so many bad times, like the, the peaks and troughs to a professional golfer is probably insane because it's all lived out in their head. You know, whether they're playing a good shot, bad shot, when they have a six foot putt, not really thinking about making or not making it. They're worried about what people will think of them if they make it or don't make it, you know, and that's a lot to do with investing as well. Um, and I think the way you play and so really it's back to investing. So I think, I think it's similar to, stock picking, especially in micro cap and emerging companies, because, you know, if you stay in micro cap and small cap, especially if you're concentrated, you know, your spectrum of outcomes is pretty wide. You know, it's like you're, it's like you're beat up like constantly because, you know, you can make a lot of money and you can lose a lot of money. And I think those types of ups and downs over years or decades does create a decent amount of scar tissue and the scar tissue, you know, usually shows up with an investor with, it usually comes in more and more as a fear of failure that ultimately derides their returns. They're afraid to take risk anymore um, because of kind of just dwelling on the losses they took prior, or maybe they look back at some of their wins and it's a little bit of, of, wow, I really got lucky there. That wasn't skill. You know, that starts creeping in a little bit more and just kind of deadens you and creates more scar tissue. And I think, you know, I think that's generally why you also see just investors get more risk averse as they as they age. Like the only person I think that is the opposite of that is Bill Miller. You know, the, the great investor. Like, there's very few people that are in their 80s, you know, slinging three stock and Bitcoin portfolios. You know, that was that that risk was beaten out of them 20 years ago. You know, there's and so that I think that he's one of those rare instances where you know he's not a, not afraid to swing. You know, and and oftentimes that. If you're if you stay in this game long enough, I think you just get afraid to swing, and it just uh, destroys your returns. Quite honestly, and we all know that our worst rounds are played when we approach the game that way, and our best rounds are when we look at the target and we swing. So, getting back to your point, you know, Buffett's been doing this for a long time, forty or fifty years. You know, he's not doing small microcaps. You know, like his spectrum of outcomes is like right here; it's pinched. You know, and so I think that's why folks that kind of stay the duration for forty or fifty or sixty years. Um, obviously their net worth and their portfolio size has given them the ability to probably take less risk as well. The way they, the way they got rich is sometimes differently than how they got really, really rich. <laughs> <laughs> how do you think about, uh, Munger's idea of, um, of having low expectations? I mean, to not create that huge emotional effect when, when something goes against you, that you're prepared for it. Because it goes against what we spoke about before about, I mean, having strong confidence and so on, I think. That's the... Yeah, I think it's... I really believe in confidence and conviction. You know, I, I'm a conviction investor. I wrote an article about it last week, you know, and I, and I feel like um, for me, every one of my investments, I think I'm right. I know I'm right. And I say that tongue-in-cheek because I know I'm going to be wrong on a few of them. And I think, yeah, I think you do need to I, th- I, I do feel like you really do need self-confidence in this game, even when you maybe don't deserve it. You know, and I, I think the best educator is investing. Like that's my best advice to anybody that's new and investing would be the same advice to anybody picking up a golf club for the first time, you know, just go swing, you know, figure out who you are, figure out what you want to be, 
you know, in investing, figure out how you want to swing. Just go out and hit a ball. You know, don't be afraid to lose money if you're going out to to invest because that's how you're going to learn the hard lessons. You know, and you you can't learn those lessons in a book or learning about how other people did it, especially if you're a type A person that thinks they already know everything, which a lot of us thought we did when we first got started investing, you know, move over Buffett, you know, I'm coming for you, you know? Uh, so it's, you're, you're just gonna have to learn these lessons over time. I think we have uh, covered this topic a bit, especially in the beginning where you, where you spoke about your, your, your teacher who, who played with one arm, but I, I, I really loved it so much. So I, I have to bring it up and I think we have some, some um, we will we will have some good discussions after it. And the quote was: "Many a player has been cruising along in a match until his opponent suddenly and and unexpectedly sinks a long chip or comes out of the woods to make par. Surprised, he loses his focus, starts to feel pressured, and foul, fouls up his own game." And I, I really think this is striking for the the time we have been through with the, uh, after after the COVID effects. Um, how how is it for you? I mean, you have been you have been uh, investing through bear markets and bull markets, and um, when I mean, do you actually do you care about the markets when you invest? The way I care about the macro is to care about the micro, and you know that's definitely something that's evolved over time. You know, and so do I follow the macro? Yes, of course I do. I'm not an idiot, but do I worry about it? No. What I try to do is plan. Um, and so the way I plan is by looking for certain set of principles and characteristics in the companies I invest in that if the worst case scenario happens, I know that they can survive and still grow, you know? And so the way I handle the macro or the market pressures is really to be focused on my individual investments, you know, do these, can these businesses grow through a recession? You know, that, well, that takes the opportunity set, down to, you know, three or 4% of companies, you know, do they have a balance sheet, especially when you're talking about microcap, do they have a balance sheet that can endure, you know, through a bad period of time where they can be aggressive when their competitors aren't, you know, are they led by intelligent fanatics, you know, that have skin in the game with that business? Do they have great people around them? You know, do they have the product processes, culture that can scale? You know, and lastly, like the valuation, you know, comes back to valuation price does matter. It's like, do I think that fundamentally this business can, this stock can double in three years, you know, or 25% CAGR, you know? And so when you put things kind of through a, a framework, like that's just mine, it shouldn't be yours or anybody else's, you know, but when you put things through that, do I worry about macro? No, you just plan, you just plan for the worst. And I think the best companies do have a duality of growth and survival to them, you know, and that's predominantly what I'm looking for, you know, things that can sustain high organic growth rates that can survive, you know, and also one of one businesses, not one of a thousand, you know, is this, I, I love the idea of scarcity. It's something that it's always, I've always liked it, you know, for the last 15 years, I've only been able to kind of write about it in the last five, but you know, just finding those one of one businesses where we all want to find something overvalued that can get uh, undervalued that can get overvalued, you know, and scarce good or great businesses always get overvalued because there's a scarcity of them. And so when you can find a business 
where it's really the only way to play in a certain trend or area. You know, that's a powerful thing. That's like finding a Picasso. We covered a lot of uh, the process of investing, but uh, then then the results are, are also important, of course, and, and we touched upon it. But uh, something that Rotella believes that golfers should not use is a scorecard outside of tournaments. And that is because they get distracted from, from playing and making the next shot. And uh, I think this is similar to, to investors checking stock prices like all the time and, and being obsessed with the market. So have you found any any way to get your dopamine boost without checking stock prices? No. Um, I check stock prices frequently. You know, I think where I would invert that a little bit. So I'm not one that says you shouldn't watch your stock prices or only should check it, you know, every third Thursday or, you know, whatever. Like I, And it's probably because it's just the way I've always been. Like I have no issues with checking stock prices. I think the issue and and... And you hit on this as well, Eddie, is just um, looking at the scoreboard, looking at other people's scoreboard and comparing yourself to other people. Um, that's something that I think is is really, really toxic. You know, and, and like you said, Rotella said, um, you know, one of the most common mental errors committed by golfers under pressure is letting the score distract them what they all, from what they ought to be thinking. You know, I think investors do the same thing as well. I mean, we, we, all, we always see at the end of, end of a quarter, you know, it's like we all love to, to act like we love reading everybody's quarterly letters, right? But what's the first thing you do? You're going to go to the performance line and you're going to compare what you just did that previous quarter, that past year, and compare yourself to it and feel good or bad, you know? And everybody, and it's the stupidity of it is that we all invest differently. Everyone will perform differently over different time periods. And it's the most toxic thing you can do is because the most, the worst part of it is when you're doing poorly and you're doing that, you're comparing the worst of who you are against the best of everybody else. And it just puts more and more, you know, pressure on yourself and it can lead you to doing stupid things like changing, changing your strategy in unnecessary ways or, to, or taking on more risk. And you just can't let that short term underperformance, whatever, distract you from the long-term game you're playing. So You know, I try not to watch the scoreboard, you know, um, obviously I still read people's investors letters and I don't mean to, to say that's an awful thing, but I don't like the comparison part of investing. I feel like that is really, really the worst part and the most toxic part of investing because you're comparing a game you're playing against somebody else's completely different game. I love the example from the book where I think it was Jack Nicholas who was at the 16th tee in a tournament in the fourth, uh, fourth round and he hadn't looked at uh, how the other players w- were playing. And, and then he asked, asked his cad- caddy, okay, how, how do we stand? And the caddy says, oh, you're seven up. And then he hit a double boogie <laughs> yeah. immediately after. So it's, uh, I mean, maybe maybe that was just a coincidence, but I think it was quite interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. You want to play each hole that you're confident. That means hitting shots that you know you can hit. You know, it means playing high percentage shots that you know you can hit. That's what gives you confidence. And we kind of already hit on that too. But I think, uh, you know, oftentimes as investors, after you do have a, a bad shot or a bad investment, you know, the, the risk is just making a really bad next decision. When I had a couple big wins when I was a full-time private investor and a couple big losses, I always, I told my wife then, I said, you know, it's time to go on a vacation, you know, just like clear the head. 
you know, it's, it's a lot less expensive to go on an expensive vacation <laughs> than it is to, for, me, for me to make a dumb decision after a big win when you're feeling overconfident or after a big loss where you're just second guessing everything that you're doing. You don't make good decisions when you're really, really overly confident because you feel like you have all the answers. When you're doing really, really poorly, you don't believe in anything. You don't believe in yourself. You don't believe you can make any type of good, good decision. You know, and you don't want to be making decisions when you're above or over that band. You kind of want to stay right in the center. And how does, does that work for you now that you are the CIO of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management? Do you have some colleagues to discuss with or, or how's your team set up? Yeah. So I have Michael Liu. He works with me full time as an analyst. And, uh, you know, Microcap Club's always been that for, for me as well. It's like, that's just been a huge place, you know, a huge resource for me to network with investors and build relationships with other investors. You know, that's, that's what it continues to be for me. I mean, it's a great idea generator, but kind of the you know, in the, in the catbird seat of that website has also allowed me to kind of spot up and coming talent in the microcap ecosystem, you know? And so that's where I got to know Michael Liu when he was 15, when he became a member of microcap club, you know, now he's 22, he's still young and he'll be smarter than I ever will be. Um, and that's what gives me gratification is just, you know, trying to lean into some up and coming talent, you know, because Hey, listen, you know, Buffett, Lynch, Greenblatt, they all started microcaps. So it's not too far fetched to think the next great investor may come out of microcap, you know? And so they just happen to grow up and out as their capital grows over time. All those investors did, you know? And so, um, I think microcap is a great place to spot talent for investing, You know, it's a great place to learn because you have to form independent research and independent thoughts because there's no analysts covering half of these companies or more. So you have to do the work. There's no one else to blame but you. So I think it's a great place to start investing because you have to do the work. And what are your ambitions with the firm long term? Yeah, you know, I would hope in three or five years that a couple of the micro caps we own become small caps. And they're going to be big chunks of the portfolio. You know, do I think that I'll be running two, three, five, 10x this amount at some point in time? Yes. Um, how do you get there? It's not going to be from bringing on another $200 million. It's going to be from those stocks going up. And so the way this portfolio evolves over time is, you know, it's going to look a lot like a sports team, you know, where you're going to have some veterans on that team. They're going to deserve a bigger position and a bigger salary, you know, and then you're going to have rookies. You're going to be constantly trying to scout talent and you bring them on a smaller position size. And as they grow, you know, they might become the next veterans, you know, as they earn that right. And then there's going to be some you bring on the team that disappoint you, you end up cutting them. And then you replace them with another rookie. Hopefully you can find the next set of veterans. So that's kind of the way I see the portfolio evolving over time. And you can't pressure it. There's nothing I can do to say, all right, well, let's do this. You know, the, it'll evolve naturally. And do you have any limitations around countries or sectors to invest in? No. I don't like we have, uh, and we're concentrated, but, um, we probably half the book is in the U S uh, we had a couple in Australia. We had a couple in Europe. We had, uh, we did have a couple even last year of the Nordics, um, that we looked at that we put on quickly and took back off. Um, so we can, we can go anywhere. I would say it's predominantly English speaking, similar accounting rules, developed countries for the most part. How do you think about portfolio concentration? I mean, you mentioned six stocks, but could one stock become more than 50% of the portfolio or 
How do you think about that? If we are successful, yes. That should be that is a positive outcome. In that scenario, you're always you have one foot in reality and you're always comparing it to what to the reality of that business. That's why maintenance due diligence is the most important part of any conviction investor is knowing what you own at all times. You know, and not just because it's fifty percent doesn't mean it should remain fifty percent. You know, is this is the state of the business today somewhere where I think that this business can still double in three years? You know, is this doesn't mean you never take it off either. You know, the kind of the, the formula that's worked for me is whenever a stock gets to the price where it's kind of bringing forward the next three to five years of fundamentals, that's usually what I start taking some off. Um, other than that, I let them, I let them run and let them run hard. So yes, I would let a position get to 50%. Um, you just have to watch them closely, watch that basket. I think Richard Lawrence that we had on the podcast had this uh, concept of getting tomorrow's price today and then 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 you should sell more or less. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean a, a couple of the a couple of our larger positions that's literally what the CEOs and cuz I have good relationships with them. I mean that's what they think about their businesses too. Like literally that's what one of them told me cuz I Because I said, you know, if somebody offered you a price, what would the price be? And he said, well, if they gave me a price that I felt I was getting um, where the business would be in four years, you know, that's something I would have to consider, you know. And so I think the more you can kind of align yourself to what management believes, you know, in that regard, again, keeping two feet firmly in reality, you know, as long as that business is executing it, the business is not executing, you should sell it. It doesn't matter if you like the CEO and they own 20% of the company and they allocate capital greatly. You know, if the business isn't executing, you sell it. You know, so that's first and foremost. But if the business is continuing to do what they should be doing, you know, let your let your winners run. You know, that's that's what I firmly believe. And have you invested like most of your your own money in the stock or or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a majority of my net worth is in the fund now. And is it open for any of our listeners if they are interested in joining? It changes. Uh, you know, right now we are open, um, bringing on a couple new partners this this month. Um, but we've been closed quite a bit. Usually, when there's op- usually when I think that it's an opportunistic time to come in at the prices of the companies that we own is when I would would open up. You know, which you know is usually when we're down. A little bit more than I think we should be, and we're getting good value in what we do, and that's when I open up and then close it back up again. And do you have like a waiting list for that? Or? Yeah, we have we have um, we have a waiting list of folks that have shown interest. Doesn't mean that they decide to to come in because, quite honestly, you know, usually when you're in a drawdown, either your own portfolio or the macro is right when nobody wants to write a check to. So you know, you're kind of going up against that headwind of of sentiment. You know, which everybody goes through. It doesn't matter whether you allocate a billion dollars or a hundred thousand. You know, everybody fights that. Understand. And uh, as this is a book podcast, we like to wrap up with some questions about reading and writing. And the reason, I mean, I've read read your books before, and I've listened to podcasts with you. But uh, why I found this book to be interesting was because you mentioned it in Vishal Kandelwal's one of our previous guests, his own podcast, uh, the One Percent Show. And there you had a couple of books that you recommended, but maybe you have some other titles that you could mention for for our listeners that you think is relevant for for investors and that maybe not that many people have read. I mentioned the elements of scoring. If 
there's golfers and investors. I think that's another book that is applicable to investing. I've been going through a phase where I've just been reading a, a few novels, quite honestly, to kind of get the creative outlet going. And that's why I like to read novels. So it's not just all about educating myself. If you want to, like, I like to let my imagination go because that's usually what spurs creative thought for writing, for journaling. Um, and I find that just as additive as, as reading things that are directly related to investing. And how much are you reading in a typical week? Usually my process is getting up at at 5 a.m. And that first hour of the day, I'll grab some coffee in the first hours, just sitting down with the book. We really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your thoughts about golf and, and how it can make us better investors. So do you have something more you want to add before we finish up here? Um, no, I think we covered a lot of bases. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate the thoughtful conversation. And lastly, where can our audience follow you and, and the work? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just my name, Ian Castle. You can find me on Microcap Club talking about stocks, net networking with people. And uh, we also have a, a fund, Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management. Um, we have a website there if you Google it. You know, you can find me there as well. Thank you so much, Ian. This was uh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Red Eye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore Red Eye and email us at ib.podcast at redeye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit redeye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.